we're turning to James, we're going through this series, Authentic Christian Living. What does it really look like to follow Jesus? And we'll see that this grace that has come to us, the love of God that we've come to know, not only results in wonderful times of worship that we've enjoyed this morning, but it results in a radical way of living, a different way of living. And James is, is really keen to, to show and to teach and to exhort those that he's writing to through this letter, how to live as, as an authentic Christian, as an authentic follower of Jesus, how to join the dots from what you believe to what you do. And he's going to continue to do that uh, for us this morning. So we've heard already through this series uh, about joy, about wisdom, about temptation, about anger, uh, how faith affects our actions. And this morning, the focus is going to be on the folly of favoritism, the folly of favoritism. So I'm going to read from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to read from the NIV this morning. James writes, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in also. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at my feet on the floor, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble, noble name of him whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're going to go through this kind of quite hard-hitting, powerful passage here, and we're going to highlight three things as we do so. We're going to see an example of favoritism. We're going to see the temptation to favoritism, perhaps how we might experience that in our own lives. And then finally, we're going to look at freedom from favoritism, living differently, acting differently, walking in a different way. So first, we're going to look at an example of favoritism. Because James says in verse 1, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And actually, before we kind of look at his example, let's just, uh, although it's probably obvious, what is favoritism? Well, I looked it up. It's giving someone unfair preferential treatment. That's what he's talking about, favoritism. And um, we've already uh, heard uh, one Greek word this morning, or I discovered another one recently. If you kind of get underneath this word favoritism, or you might have partiality if you're reading the NIV, really the word underneath that means, it's a kind of compound word, and it means don't receive the face. Don't receive based on face values. Don't relate to people and give people special treatment 
based on what you immediately observe about them, perhaps markers of different things like wealth and status and power and ability and beauty and title, all those kind of things. Don't, don't treat people based on those things. Don't show favoritism. Don't receive based on face values. Or, or worse, mistreating people based on some of those markers or the absence thereof, based on apparent poverty or weakness or disability or race or whatever it might be. Don't treat people based on those surface external markers. Now, the example that James gives seems quite shocking, doesn't it? I don't know if you're crumbs. Was that really going on? It's extraordinary. A rich man comes in wearing a gold ring and uh, everyone just kind of rushes to them. You imagine that happened to the welcome team. They kind of, oh, they, look at the gold shining on that person's ring. And they rushed to them. And they immediately kind of tried to find the best seat in the house. And just, just imagine we had uh, over, over here, well, let's just say here, a row of seats. You know when you go into the cinema and um, you have those two different tiers of seats, you have those ones you pay a little bit more for, and they're a little bit more comfy, and you've got a bit more space, and you've got that nice cup holder there and place for your popcorn and so on. Just imagine we had a row of those seats just, just here, and uh, we instructed the welcome team, if you spot someone coming in and they look, they look rich, that's the place for them. Rush them down the front. If there's anyone there, just kind of move them aside and give them the most comfy seat. Show them how it reclines. Show them, in fact, give them some free food as well. I think you can get nachos and stuff if you go in these special seats in the cinema. Or maybe kind of a balcony seat. You know when you go to the opera and you get those specials. We, we could hollow out those, couldn't we? We could have, uh, there's a little um, corridor behind there. We could have like balcony seats, special seats. Do you imagine that? Ah, well, that, would be, uh, that would be quite shocking, and yet that's what was going on here. It was extraordinary, and actually it's kind of uh, worse than that, because in a way, if you did that for everybody, well, that would be okay, wouldn't it? If everybody had a nice seat, and everybody had a good view, and everybody had the popcorn and the nachos and all that kind of stuff, well, fantastic, treat everyone the same, but that's not what they were doing. Then a poor person comes in, or apparently so, dressed, dressed in rags, and uh, I just didn't get your head around this. Do you imagine of that instructing the welcome team? If, if someone comes in and they're not very well dressed, well, there's a kind of a place right at the back there. They don't even get a chair. And worse than that, worse than that, sit at my feet. Imagine what was, what was going on. No wonder James writes quite strongly to them. And I thought, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I've seen that somewhere before. I've seen that kind of behavior somewhere before. I'm thinking, where is it? Where is it? And I remembered. Forty Towers. Do you remember that? Some of you won't, won't remember Forty Towers. I thought, well, we'll try and show you a clip, because it's quite extraordinary. I want you to watch the way. Basil Forty owns this hotel, and um, he says he's got tired of, the, of uh, what he calls the riffraff coming in. He wants to raise the tone of his establishment. So he puts an advert in Country Life, and uh, he's hoping that some, uh, some more affluent, um, rich and noble people will come into his establishment. But I want you to watch the way that he treats this man first of all and then how that changes. So can we, yeah, can we show that? I was wondering if you could offer me accommodation for a few nights. Well, have you booked? I'm sorry. Have you booked? Have you booked? I know. Oh, dear. Why, are you a fool? No, no, we're not fool. <laughs> fool? Of course we're not fool. But I'd like one to... One moment, one moment, please. 
Yes, uh, single word. Your name, one. please. Could I have your name? Emil. One second, please. Hello? <laughs> ah, yes, Mr. O'Reilly. Well, it's perfectly simple. Uh, when I asked you to build me a wall, I was rather hoping that instead of just uh, dumping the bricks in a pile, you might have found time to cement them together, you know, one on top of the other in the traditional fashion. Could you fill it in, please? Oh, splendid. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, but when, Mr. O'Reilly? There, there, there. Yes, 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 but when? Yes, 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 yes. Ah, the flu, yes. Would you put both your names, please? Well, would you give me a date? I only use one. You don't have a first name. You know, I am Lord Melbury, so I simply sign Melbury. <laughs> <laughs> Go away. <laughs> and so, uh, sorry to now, is there something, uh, something, anything that I can do for you? Anything? Uh, yes, well, I have filled this in. Oh, please, don't bother with that. Now, a room. A room, a special room, a single, a double, a suite? Well, we don't have any suites, but we have some beautiful doubles. No, oh, no, 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 just a single. Just a single, absolutely. How very wise, if I may say so, Your Honour. Yeah, with a bath. Oh, naturally. Naturally. Naturellement. <laughs> I shall, uh, I shall be staying for oh, one or two nights. please. Manuel! Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you. Uh, would you mind moving to that table? Uh, could I ask you please to move to that table over there? I'm so sorry to trouble you. Thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, Lord Melbury's table, you see? What? Uh, Lord Melbury, uh, when yes, he stays with us, he always sits at this table. Why did they put us here, then? Uh, an oversight on my wife's part, I'm so sorry. He's only just arrived, you see. Would you mind, Polly? Uh, would you help these people move to Great fruit, Thank you. Thank you so much. Come on, come on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> ah, Lord Melbury, do please uh, come this way, Your Lordship. I have your table over here by the window, as usual. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think the humour comes from the fact that it's, there's a humanity that we can recognise there. It's a, there's, there's something, uh, there's a temptation in people to respond to others based on these surface opinion, the surface kind of uh, appearances. It's kind of uh, the cringingly familiar in some ways, perhaps if we recognise it only in a small way in, in us, in ourselves. It's a kind of exaggerated in that uh, clip, and uh, I, mean, I like to think it's exaggerated in, uh, in James's description, but, uh, but who knows? There is, nevertheless, it's important for us to recognize there is this temptation to treat people based on surface appearances. So now we're going to look at really the temptation of favoritism. Why were they doing this? Why were they doing such a shocking thing, which kind of seems to us, well, surely they weren't doing that. And perhaps one of the reasons is this was actually ingrained in their culture. It was, there was this system of patronage where rich people who had all the money they wanted used their money to gain glory and honor for themselves. There was, a, I'm sure you know, the kind of the Roman empires, big on glory, big on honor. So they would pay huge sums of money for roads to be built, for um, 
and whatever it is, buildings to be constructed uh, for artworks and statues. And they would expect in return, they were doing that in order to receive praise and honor, literally so that when they went into a restaurant or a coliseum or whatever it was, they would get the best seat. That was just the way things were set up. They honored people who did that. And so therefore, there must have been a large temptation for people to treat the rich in that way. It's just what was in the culture. It's how things worked. And also a temptation, perhaps, for those who were rich and perhaps who, who came to faith even, who were in the Christian community, to think that they would operate in the same way, to think that as they gave to the church, as they gave massive sums of money, perhaps, that they should receive something in return. They should receive glory and special seats and so on. So in one sense, there was this thing in the culture that was perhaps a little bit more exaggerated, maybe, than it is in ours. But nevertheless, it's not completely kind of incomprehensible what was going on. I mean, if someone pays a huge sum of money, perhaps to build a hospital in our city, it's not inappropriate to show gratitude. In fact, if, if one does something kind for another or gives to another in the Christian community, in, in any community really, it's totally appropriate to show gratitude in different ways. That is okay, and we're not being exhorted here to be ungrateful or to stop being discerning in the way that we relate to people. But there's something more sinister which is going on here, and that is picked up in the fact that that's, they're not treating everyone like that. We have this extraordinary phrase, sit at my feet. The guy doesn't even get a chair. And James says this comes from evil thoughts. So we're just going to look briefly at some of those things that might flash perhaps through our minds and certainly must have been going through their minds that they would treat people based on these surface appearances. What are these evil thoughts that James is referring to? Well, the first is that we can actually have a love of money or, or wealth or status or power such that it becomes a false god for us, such that our lives revolve around it. And when we see someone with these things, they kind of act in a way, like, a, like an idol for those things, a kind of an earthly conduit that we might draw close to that thing which we love, be it money or status or fame or whatever it might be, or success or ability. We kind of love being around those people because we, we crave those things ourselves. We worship at their feet. We follow them on Instagram. We talk about them. We think about them and their lifestyle, flicking through magazines or, through, or scrolling through images enjoying being near them and being associated with them and hoping perhaps, perhaps some of it might rub off on us. Perhaps if we hang around the famous people, perhaps we will have some of their status. Perhaps if we befriend a rich person, some of their money will come our way. It's a, it's a false worship. It's a false God that has usurped God's place in our lives. It's an evil thought. James is saying this is just wrong thinking. He's saying, remember what Jesus said, you can't worship God and money. There's a, a powerful displacement which takes place where money takes God's place in our lives or status or power or whatever it might be. We are to worship God and him only. We're not to have, we're to, we're to challenge this thought when it comes to us and particularly if we see it in the way we're reacting to people. Are we treating people differently? Could it be because we have this love of money that's in us? By the way, if you want to break free of a love of money, a very helpful way of doing it is to give it away in secret so that nobody knows. Jesus taught on that. It's a brilliant way to establish that God is God and money is not God. Now, we choose as elders not to, we don't ask who, who gives what. It's just not helpful. So in one sense, the bad news is that you won't get a good seat 
if you give large amounts of money. It's just, I tell you up front, that's not going to happen. But what you will get is, is the freedom from the misery that the love of money causes in our lives. As we give away in secret so that, that nobody else knows, to, to the Lord, as an act of worship to him, as an act of love to him, saying, Lord, thank you that you call us to be part of your purposes together in this church and beyond. We get the joy of playing our part. And well, all of this, just, we, we don't know, but we want to, from the bottom of our heart, thank you for, for your generous, ongoing, regular giving. We often have gift days and just overwhelmed by the generosity of the church. But also day by day, week by week, month by month, there is just incredible generous giving going on. It, it, it enables this to happen. It enables these wonderful times that we gather here on Sunday. It facilitates our one anothering and our outreach all through the week. It's a result of generous, faith-filled giving that is releasing us from the love of money and enabling us to enjoy more the love of God for us as expression of our worship to him. So everyone gets the same seat, but it's a joy and a privilege to give in the way that we do. So bless you for that. The second kind of, uh, I won't, I'll only maybe touch on three of these kind of thoughts, but uh, for, the, for the extent that it is uh, helpful for us. Another one is that we show favoritism to powerful people, not because we want something from them, but because we're fearful of them. Now, what a bad word from them. They could, they could wreck us. They could ruin our lives. So when someone powerful comes in, maybe we have to be a little bit careful around them. And that's another evil thought, James would say, because we're to fear God and not man. We're not to fear people, no matter how rich or powerful or influential they are. We trust ourselves into God's hands and walk and follow Jesus. Don't get swayed by powerful people, fearing them. We fear God, not man. And a third, just a final kind of evil thought that might flash through our minds, perhaps, perhaps less so, well, uh, I hope less so today, but certainly must have been or may have been a challenge for them. Many have assumed that riches, a, a gifting, success, that these things are a sign of God's favor and blessing upon a person. If you're rich, it's due to your own efforts. And God is rewarding you. And if you're poor, it's your fault for doing something wrong. In fact, God is punishing you if that's the case. It's perhaps understandable that some of this, the community might have that in the back of their minds because there is a more explicit connection in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant between ethical behavior and a practical uh, blessing, material blessing, Deuteronomy 28 and so on. But that was in anticipation of Jesus' com coming and him being our perfect righteousness. It was God was painting a picture in, in a fixed period of time of, the, of not just this age, but the age to come. He was drawing an illustration, the lives of these people, such that when Job suffered, actually he did get in that life, he got back uh, many of those things which he lost. He was blessed materially. But here in our lives right now, we look forward to the return of Jesus and all things being made right. And right now, in fact, we experience difficulty and hardship and poverty, even as God has been speaking to us about this morning. And in fact, even if we look back into the Old Testament, it's kind of there as well. In Psalm 73, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Always carefree, they increased in wealth. You can't assume just because someone is wealthy that God is blessing them. Actually, they may be wicked, they may be doing things wrong, it may be gotten through ill-gotten means. 
Solomon saw a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. That's the way it was. Even, even back then, these things were going on. That You couldn't equate someone's prosperity with God's blessing on their life. And in fact, if we read through the New Covenant, we see something quite the opposite happening. Often it's those who follow Jesus who are losing their lives. It's those who follow Jesus who are experiencing poverty. And James is writing to people to whom that has happened. Many have fled their homes, have moved their families, are experiencing poverty now because they've chosen to follow Jesus. Wealth is not necessarily an indication of God's blessing on your life. And the same with poverty. It is not an indication of God's um, punishing you in some way. In fact, as Jesus teaches, it could be actually to take heart in that kind of thing. Take heart when people speak ill of you, when your status is kind of rock bottom, when you have no money, when people persecute you and take it away. Rejoice. In fact, James has taught that to them. Count it pure joy, all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of many kinds. We experience that. This, this is the reality now that we live in. And even this morning, I think, as God's been speaking, many of us are, are certainly experiencing that, as that's what God has been talking to us about. We're walking through life in weakness, but in financial difficulty, in relational trouble, in people speaking badly of us. We don't seem to prosper in the way those around us do. We've made very costly decisions to follow Jesus, and we're paying the price James says, count it joy. It is not a sign. Your poverty and your challenge and your difficulty is not a sign that God is not with you. Far from it, actually, if you've chosen to follow Jesus. So this evil thought can perhaps flash through their minds. Ah, here's someone who is obviously enjoying the blessing of God. We'll join in. Here's someone who's obviously done something wrong. Let's join in and add to the punishment. Well, that's enough of evil thoughts. I want to move on now, finally, to freedom from favoritism. Freedom from favoritism. We don't want to live like this. I'm sure we, none of us want to live like this. How can we empower to live a different way to many in the world might live? I'm going to work through these uh, verses just very briefly. The first reason is in verse 5. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom. He's deliberately chosen the poor to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom. Now, why has he done this? Well, as we read through Scripture, we discover it is to bring his grace into more glorious relief by choosing the poor, the nobodies, the nothing specials, the self-confessed sinners. He is making the point that nothing about us merits his kindness and his love and his goodness. Nothing about us draws that forth from him. In fact, Jesus hung around kind of the worst of sinners sometimes, didn't he? He was accused of doing that. He went to them. Nothing about us merits God's kindness. In fact, much about us disqualifies us from anything good that he might do. And yet, extraordinarily, God has shown us amazing grace in coming to us in the person of Jesus and forgiving us, not showing partiality, not going to the rich, not going to the famous, not going to the well-to-dos, not going going to those who are poor the have-nots. We're all, of course, actually in a state of spiritual poverty, aren't we? I hope you, maybe you, you know that. We, don't, we haven't kept God's law. There's a reminder here, you've got to keep all of it. If you want to come before God based simply on being good, you've got to keep everything. You've got to be, live the perfect life. And very few people are, uh, make the mistake of thinking that they lived an absolutely perfect life. Even by our own standards, we fall short, let alone God's. 
And so Jesus comes to the last and the least and the wretched and the worst. And he shows his grace to us, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And that's the core of who he is, a God full of grace. Perhaps another reason why he comes to the poor and the poor inherit the kingdom of God is because there's something deceptive about money. It, it deceives us as it, as it grows in our bank accounts, as our house gets bigger, as our car gets more fancy, as we amass more gold, as we get the more praise from people, as people start giving us the special seats. It, it deceives us into thinking that we are, we are good. We don't need saving. Why would I need saving if I'm so good, if I can do all of this? Everybody else might, but not me. There's a deception that comes with wealth. I think James goes on to warn people if you're wealthy. You've just got to be careful around money. There's a deception that comes that actually you don't look for salvation. You don't look for help. You don't look for forgiveness. I've got it all sorted. Thank you very much. Jesus didn't come for those who think they're sorted. He came to those who knew they needed help. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's very difficult for someone who is rich and wealthy in this world, who's prosperous, to come to that point. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Second reason why uh, James uh, helps us break free of favoritism and points us in the direction away from favoritism, empowers us to live differently, is in verse 6. He says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? He says, wake up, wake up. They don't care about you. What are you doing? Kind of fawning over these people that, that come in with a gold uh, uh, ring on their finger. They don't care about you. Their God is money. They care about you to the extent that they will get money from you and they will leave you poor and destitute. They've no interest in you. That, many of them. You get wonderfully generous, rich people, of course. But there's something particularly deceptive about money that if we just kind of uh, kowtow to rich people. We mustn't think that they have our best interests at heart. They don't, often. They don't care about us. By contrast, Jesus comes to us and just gives himself to us for free. He had everything. He had such glory and honor with his, his father. He just, he owned everything, had everything, and he he came down for us. He came to be with us and to give himself for us. In fact, to give himself up for us on the cross. This is, this is different. This is, this is, this is a, a, he glorifies himself through giving himself to us. The temptation of riches is to glorify yourself through your riches and your, your abundance of what you have. But Jesus glorifies himself through giving it all to us. He wants our protection and he wants our best. He has our best interests at heart. James warns them and encourages them in that direction. The third reason that we should not sow favoritism then is in verse 8. It's the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this was, okay, um, I thought that was Jesus that first coined that. And uh, no, it's, it's in the Old Testament. I was quite encouraged. Oh, there it is. It is in Scripture. I thought, is it in Scripture? It is, in, it is there in Scripture, in Leviticus 19. It starts like this, in fact. It starts, in fact, exactly in the context of showing favoritism. So James obviously knew his Old Testament really well. It says, it is in uh, Leviticus 19. You shall not be partial, so that word again, to the poor, or defer to the rich. Be amazed at them. Be like impressed by them. Don't, don't do that. 
but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And then it goes on at the bottom of that paragraph, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus picks up on that and he says, you know what, that just encapsulates the whole of God's law in terms of how we're to relate to one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It just sums up everything. This is the way we are to live. This is the way James encourages them to live. And who is our neighbor? They ask him, don't they, the Pharisees, oh, who, who is our neighbor? Is it someone who dresses like us, who believes the same thing as I do? Is it someone who's wealthy and successful and gifted? Who's my neighbor? And of course, in the parable of Good Samaritan, Jesus defines our neighbor as anyone in need. And so when people come amongst us and there's, there's need, there are our neighbor. When we see situations, uh, even across the world, become our neighbor, the people in need. What, is, what does it look like to love people as Jesus has loved us? The extraordinary thing is that in the incarnation, Jesus basically moved next door. God moved next to us in the person of Jesus. We're his neighbor. And on the cross, he met our need for forgiveness, dying for our sin. He didn't come for glory and pomp. And he didn't come for the best seat. Born, born in a, you know, a dirty old stable, as we remember at Christmas. That's, that's, that's where he didn't come for the best seat. He came to give himself for us. And we are loved with the love the Father has for the Son. Love your neighbor as yourself. We come into this by the Spirit. We come into this love that the Father has for the Son, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. This is why we love our neighbor as ourselves. This is why it's so unbecoming for the Christian, the follower of Jesus, the believer, to show favoritism in this way. That's not how God has treated us. And uh, just fourth reason here, and uh, this might kind of uh, sound shocking in a way, but it's just it's right there. This is in, in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we will all sit before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be a day when we're judged. And we should know that the way we extend mercy to others is an indication of the mercy that we will receive. It's important to realize that we're not under the Old Testament law, not in that covenant. Rather, by faith, we live in Christ who fulfilled the law. But the person who is in Christ is going to be increasingly Christ-shaped in their dealing with others. So if instead of showing mercy to others, we're actually showing favoritism, a warning light should go off in our mind. Hang on a minute. That's odd. I'm someone who's received mercy. What am I doing? This is madness. This is not the way to behave. I'm going to be before Jesus one day. And I am not going to be looking to say that I have kept every single command of his law. I am not going to be saying, look, look how I've kept everything perfectly. I'm not going to be saying that. I bet you're not either. I'm going to be saying, Lord, mercy. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. And I need to live in the light of that. I need to live in the light of that day that I will come before the judgment seat of Christ and I will be the recipient of mercy. How are you going to live now in the light of that? James is only just repeating what Jesus has said. He's taught this. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Father, would you forgive us as we forgive those 
who trespass against us. It's a sanity check. Well, hang on a minute. Am I really living out this forgiveness that I've received? Am I holding things against others? That's just incongruous. That's not right. It doesn't go together. I need need to kind of address that really, really quickly. Something, maybe I've misunderstood something we might say to ourselves. Have I I received this incredible grace that I would not live uh, out of it in the way that I should? It's James again encouraging us. Why such a challenging letter? Faith results in action. Results in us doing, it's not this mysterious, ethereal thing that you can't see, you can't touch. You see it, it's worked out. So what do we do though? When we realise, as often we do as we read God's word, ah, I've not been living up to this as I should. What do you do? I wonder what you're thinking you're going to do. Perhaps if God is pinpointing, perhaps it's another area of God's kind of righteousness. Maybe it's to do with the touching on, on areas of, of hatred or lust or whatever it might be. Oh, how, what do you do if, if you kind of, God puts his finger on something? Do you kind of steel yourself to try harder and do better, fearing judgment? If, if, is that, if that's what you do, you are a million miles away from the message of the gospel and what James is getting at here. What do we do? We come to God and ask for forgiveness. Where, where we confess our sins He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We come back to the cross. When when God puts his finger on something, we come to the cross and we ask for mercy. We don't say, first and foremost, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better. You'll fail. And you've already blown it. Anyway, we come for mercy. I love this statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. It was always there in the Old Testament. It was always there in the Old Covenant, but it burst forth into, into the forefront in the New Covenants. The mercy of God for us, triumphing over judgment. And as we receive God's mercy for us, we, we, we receive again the love of God into our lives. Empowers us to live that out and extend it to others. This is the way that we love others in the way that Jesus has loved us. We must first receive God's love for us. And imperfectly, but increasingly, and powerfully by the Spirit, we begin to live that out I wonder if the, the band would like to come back. I think my message here, and I think James is pointing us towards this, that freedom from showing favoritism only truly comes when we become recipients of God's totally unmerited favor upon us. Not because of anything we've done or deserved, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Something we receive by faith. He lavishes his love upon us. So why don't you stand with me now if you're able. I'm going to pray for us and then perhaps if we can finish our time in just maybe one or two more songs of worship, that would be amazing. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you, as we have in the past and maybe even this morning, as the, the prodigal son came to his father just from the pigsty, just in rags. We've, we've blown it all. We've, we've spent it all. We've got nothing left. We come to you with nothing to commend us and everything to condemn us. And yet, you wash us clean by the blood of Jesus. You separate our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. 
you wrap a cloak around us of the righteousness of Christ. What is, what is this? <laughs> I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's extraordinary grace that we have come to know in Jesus. And a ring is slipped on our finger, isn't it? Inheritance. You inherit the earth. Is it the meek that will inherit the earth? The poor, the kingdom of heaven. We've done, we, don't, we don't deserve this. But this is the way you treat us. When we come to you, say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We find ourselves so extraordinarily treated. Such grace is this. We thank you that you don't then seat us low down. You don't give us the worst seat. You seat us in heavenly places with Christ. How do we get here? Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, may it touch our hearts afresh this morning. Even in this challenging passage, may it cause us to press closer to the cross, to receive with, in, in deeper gulps, in greater measure, your love for us in Christ. No wonder James writes, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. No, we shouldn't. No, we, how could we? How could we? being recipients of such grace, being so seated when we came in in filthy rags ourselves. Look, look what the Lord has done for us. And Lord, though we walk through poverty now, we know one day that everything will be transformed and there will be a glory like we kind of can't imagine. But right now, we ask you by your Spirit, as those who have received such unmerited mercy, that we would extend it to others. Lord, help us to look for the least and the lost and the have-nots, those who might just come in cautiously amongst us or perhaps we encounter different people in different aspects of our lives. Lord, help us not to receive the face. Help us not to treat people based on surface appearance. But Lord, help us to lavish the kind of love that you've lavished on us and all those around us. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's draw close to the cross in worship.